Please remain standing as we, we read God's word. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last moment, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is, that is written, death will be swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is the the power of sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, again, welcome. So glad that you are, are here uh, with us. Especially welcome those of you who are visiting. I know some of you, you, you let us hang out with your kids uh, this week, and so you came to, to sing and, and be a part of that. Thanks for, for joining us here on a Sunday morning. It's, it's just a real privilege uh, for us. And again, too, thanks for those of you who helped. All of us, in some ways, contributed. That's part of being, uh, being a church, and so uh, thanks for that. It was, it was certainly a lot of fun. Uh, well, we're going to continue our time in, in 1 Corinthians here. We actually just uh, two weeks left. We've been studying this letter for the last six months. Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump right in um, to what God has to say this morning. God, I uh, am grateful for um, this place. I'm grateful for these people. I'm grateful for uh, your word and the way that you continue to speak to us uh, through these things written so long ago. So give us uh, hearts to hear um, and to be uh, changed by these things. God, I... Um, I love these words. It's such an honor uh, for me to be able to stand up here and proclaim um, what we just read uh, this morning. And so, God, I pray that I would um, preach as a dying man to dying people uh, in hope of what you have in store for us, Lord Jesus. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past April, uh, my, my last remaining grandparent passed away. Uh, she was 96, and I mean, I, I, I loved my grandmother, uh, but we weren't particularly close. I was, I was one of 37 grandkids, and that's not an exaggeration, like actual children of her children uh, was 37. Uh, we never lived in the same town with them as well, uh, and so I was sad, you know, of course, right, and especially for my mom, but um, I wasn't expecting to get at all emotional um, at the funeral or anything like that. But let me, let me tell you what, what got me. Uh, it was seeing my eight-year-old come to grips with death for the first time. Because, sure, we've, we've talked about it, right? And, and we've had those, those different conversations. Uh, but this was really the first time that he saw it, that he began to feel the inescapable reality of it for him and for everybody he loves, right? And, and of course, as a parent right there in that moment, I'm, I'm wanting to, to shield him from it and, and kind of protect him uh, from the reality of it. But I could see it in his face, this realization that this is how it ends. Ugh. And his, his tears very quickly became my own. And the reality is it doesn't really matter how old you are, right? I mean, sure, there is something acute about that first experience. In fact, many of us probably remember uh, that first encounter, whatever that looked like, that first realization that this, this is how it ends. But it doesn't matter how old you are. 
even, even what you believe, right? Your background or, or even what, what brings you to this place this morning. Death haunts all of us. I was at a conference uh, just a, a few months ago. Um, and one of the speakers said to a room full of pastors, he, he said, and this, this will stick with me, uh, he said, one of, one of my primary responsibilities as a pastor is to walk people to their grave. Now, no rush, anybody, okay? Um, we're not in any hurry. But that smacked me, that one of my primary responsibilities as your pastor is to help you die well and to show you myself how to die well because it's, it's coming for all of us. And, and I know if, if you're not a Christian this morning, right, if you don't, you know, believe this stuff, or, or maybe you do, but you're just kind of a little bit on the skeptical edge of, of things, and I, I totally get that. I, I tend to be that way. I, I, I'm a questioner, a doubter. That's, that's just part of, part of who I am. Uh, but if that's, if that's you this morning, you kind of hear where I'm pushing. You can kind of, I'm guessing, already feel it coming, right? Uh, you, you feel this sort of approach of, you know, like a father trying to console his eight-year-old, right? Like, like a pastor trying to comfort a room full of dying people, because that's, that's who we are. Every one of us is terminal. And you're just kind of bracing yourself for me to start shoveling the pie in the sky, right? I get that. I mean, just because we want something to be true doesn't make it true. And we're certainly not the first people to question these things, to wrestle with this stuff, to, to try to figure out what it, what it is that actually happens, if, if anything at all. You don't have to be from the 21st century to doubt this stuff, to find it hard to believe. In fact, this early church in Corinth, this, this church that we've been sort of centered around, right, for the last uh, six months, right, talking about them, they existed 2,000 years ago, and yet they had their questions, they had their doubts. And so, so how does Paul handle their questions? How does he deal with their doubts? Yeah, but for some of you, again, that, that raises another point. Well, well, why should we take Paul's word for it, right? What, is, what does he know? I get that as well. But here's the thing for me about Paul, what's so unique about him. I mean, here's an individual who historically uh, was known to have hated Jesus, so much so that he hated all of his followers and even chased after them, persecuted them, imprisoned them, even was responsible for some of their deaths. And then, after all of that in his past, something happened. And everything changed. And he himself, right, written down for us, tells, tells a story of, of encountering this one who was dead but now lives. Of, of meeting him, the one who defeated death. And that, that changed everything for Paul, so much so that not only does he spend the rest of his life trying to proclaim this message of a God who lives, and as a result, we also can live, but he even dies for it. He, he gives his own life for these things. And I, and I realize, of course, Paul could be horribly, sadly, terribly mistaken. Of course he could. And yet with promises this great, and even with just a little bit of evidence, we at least have to look into it, right? We can't just sort of push it aside. We, we have to at least explore the possibilities, if maybe. And here's what Paul says to them and to us. The end is only the beginning. The end. Uh, as final and scary and overwhelming and inevitable and unknown as it may seem, the end is only just the beginning. Okay, but how do we get here? 
Because if you've been studying this with us, right, we were at the beginning of chapter 14 last week, now we're all the way at the end of 15. So, you know, if you're paying attention, you might be, what, what do we skip, right? What are we kind of brushing, brushing aside? Well, nothing, really. If you, if you remember the end of chapter 14, we talked about when we were in chapter 11, okay? Some of you might remember that as the whole, like, head coverings and got a little weird, right? So we don't need to, we don't need to rehash any of that. So that was the end of 14. And the, the first half of 15 we covered on Easter Sunday. Uh, when we gathered together, we skipped ahead to that one because Easter is our day, right? The day of resurrection. And if you want to know what chapter 15 is about, I mean, it's the great sort of climax of 1 Corinthians. 58 verses, a really long chapter. But the first half of the chapter is all about if, if Jesus coming back to life and, and building a case that if, if that is true, then everything changes. The second half is if Jesus rose from the dead, then you and I too, we who know him, who are in relationship with them, that we too can be raised. So one, the first half is about Jesus' resurrection. The second half is about our own impending resurrection. You see, for Paul, and, and for me, and for us, if, if we are Christians, our, our hope is based, everything is based on whether or not Jesus actually came back to life. Uh, if he didn't, this is a joke, right? Why are we here? Uh, I mean, seriously, Why? Um, that, that's what Paul gets at in that first half, that we're still in our sins and death is the very best thing that we can hope for. But if he's alive, and that's a big if, I realize, for some of us, but if he is, the end is only just the beginning. And, and here's why. We're going to see it this, this morning as we look through these verses this morning. Three reasons why this is true for Paul. Um, first, uh, the end is only the beginning because we will be made new. Those of us who know Christ, we will be made new. Second, we will see death die and all that is ugly be abolished and destroyed. And third, we will know that it has not been in vain, that our current existence, the struggles, the pains, the work, it will not have been for nothing. So let's work through this together. First thing, the end is only the beginning because we will be made new. Those who have been resurrected by Jesus Christ will be new made new, new bodies in a new world. Look, look at verse 50. If you've got your Bibles open, um, I'll read it. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen as well. But chapter 15, verse 50, Paul says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Okay, so what he's, what he's getting at there uh, is that these bodies we have right now are, are broken, right? And that's not a mystery to any of us. We, we know that, we, we feel that. And so Paul is saying that for us to enter God's new world, whatever that looks like, it's going to require a new body, right? Because it's, it's new, and so a new body has to go with it. And verses 35 to 49 really unpack and describe in detail what these new bodies are like. He kind of goes, goes into that. But, but here's, here's a problem for us. Uh, the reality is that the heaven or the afterlife, whatever you want to call it, that many of us imagine uh, is a place I don't even want to visit, right? More or less spend forever and ever and ever. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? Because when we talk about the subject, our, our imaginations uh, about the, the next life have been more shaped by, you know, Gary Larson uh, and the far side uh, than by scripture, haven't they? Uh, here, here's one of my favorites. I've shown this before, but I just, I love it. I couldn't resist. Um, Wish I'd brought a magazine. I mean, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? 
For most of us, this is what we imagine. And there are three things about this that I absolutely make it a place that we, we want nothing to do with, right? This heaven or whatever it is. If this is, if this is it, we don't want anything. First of all, uh, it apparently exists in a non-physical world, right? A non-worldly existence. And so, you know, clouds and harps and maybe streets of gold, but it has nothing to do with current reality. And as such, it's not a place we can even imagine, more or less a place we'd actually go, right? It's just completely non-physical. And so we don't want to go there. Uh, second, uh, that we ourselves lose our identity, right? That we somehow become no longer human. And so, I mean, hence the wings, right? It's like, you know, you don't know anybody with, with wings. That seems a little bit strange. Or, or maybe you don't even go that far. Some of us probably imagine that we're just sort of like ghosts, right? We're just sort of floating around in this non-worldly world, ooh, you know, kind of thing. And, and, and we, we, we think about that and we think, well, loss of our bodies, that feels like a loss of identity. And again, it's not a place I want to go, right? Uh, we, we can't imagine life without these things, and so any life without them just seems like, that's, I just don't want that, right? We don't want to go there. And third, it just follows from this, is that it's just completely lame, right? Wish I'd brought a magazine. Or maybe some of you, if you're particularly spiritual, you instead imagine a church service that never ends. Because <laughs> that sounds like fun, Right? <laughs> I mean, that sounds more like the other place, doesn't it? Nobody, nobody wants to go there. And so, so if this is what we imagine, I mean, is it any wonder, right? If these, if these are the images that we have, is it any wonder that we'd rather stay put, right? If, if this is the best we can come up with, of course we want to stay here. This is familiar. This, this feels right. And, and something about this non-physical, whatever, gushy, ethereal kind of world, there's nothing about that that draws our imagination, draws our attentions. And the reality is what Paul is saying in these chapters is that none of that is true, Right? I mean, yes, yes, we're given a new body, but it's a physical human body. It's the, the 2.0 version of this. We don't become angels. That'd be a step down, not up. And, and yes, the, the world in store for us is, is different, but it's earth remade, physical, here, without all of the mess, earth 2.0. And heaven and earth actually become one. I mean, what the scriptures teach is that the physical world matters, it's not trivial, it's not, indis- it's not a sort of a dispensable uh, part of reality, but it matters. And God didn't simply come for souls. He came to make the whole world right because the whole world is broken. Not, not just what lives within us, but our very beings and everything around us. And if you are a follower of Jesus, what Paul is saying is that you will be raised physical and whole. Um, for example, my... My daughter recently asked, she's six, uh, completely out of the blue. I have no idea where this even ca- came from. I mean, she's kind of afraid of animals. And so she, she asked the other day, um, if you get eaten by an animal, uh, do you still get to go to heaven? Okay. Um, well, that's an interesting one. I don't remember that in seminary. Um, I mean, these are the kind of things that she worries about. She actually called me uh, into her room last night to make sure there were no snakes like under her bed. So this is, this is part of the, the reality, bless her heart. Um, but the reality is, to answer her question, yes, we get new bodies, right? We're not, we're not constrained to these physical things that we have. And yet, and yet what's promised to us, the picture that we see is of a, of a physical reality. Physical bodies in a physical world, just everything 2.0. And so what will it be like? Well, Paul tries to kind of describe it a little bit, beginning in verse 35. Uh, but even Paul, right, who's brilliant, he's grasping at metaphors, right, trying to, to paint a picture of what it might be or, or what, what we anticipate, and yet it's, it's hard to fully grasp, right? We don't, we don't know, and we can't pretend to know more than we actually do. 
But what he says is so clear beginning in verse 35, and I, I love the metaphor that he picks. He makes it clear that it is both like and dislike current reality. Both like and dislike current reality to the same extent that a seed is both like and dislike the plant that it becomes. That's, that's kind of the analogy that he uses. And so essentially what he's meaning is that this is us right now, right? This is who we are. We, we are a seed, and all we know of life is a seed. We, we, that's it, right? We can't imagine anything else. This is, this is what we've been. This is reality. This is, this is what we know. We're a seed. And he, Paul says that there's a sense in which that seed has to die. It has to be buried in the ground before it bursts forth full of life and something new, that this, this is what we become, right? And what's so amazing to me about this metaphor uh, is that, I mean, Paul, even right in 2,000 years ago, he knows, right, that on a molecular level, a seed and a tree are the same. It's the same. And yet it's completely different. Different in, in ways that we can't even begin to imagine because all, all we've experienced is life as the seed, right? That's all, that's all we know and that's what we're comfortable with. And, and yet it's same, but it's, it's different. It's so much better. And just like, Jesus was really Jesus after he rose from the dead. People knew him, recognized him, all of that, right? Uh, we, we don't cease to be us. Uh, we're still who we are, right? You're still you. And yet so much better. I mean, I stagger at the picture that Paul paints. I mean, look at, look at uh, beginning in verse 42 there. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown or planted, right? That's the, the metaphor that he's continuing on. What is, what is planted is perishable, and what grows up out of the ground is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. But this one is perishable. We know that, right? I mean, we see the decay on each other's faces. We feel the frailty in our own bones, right? I mean, think about it. Our bodies peak at about 20 years old. And the next 60 years is entropy. Slow, slow, slow death for all of us. That's <laughs> what it is. They're perishable. And we, we, know, we know that we need a new one, right? I mean, even our laughter, we know that this, this one's not going to cut it. Not long enough, not as long as we want. And, and kids, you feel it every time you get hurt. You know that something is not right. And, I mean, the older you get, Right? I mean, some of you out there, you, you definitely know. I, I've begun to, without, I mean, it's just, it's just not the same anymore. We went, to, we went to Worlds of Fun a couple weeks ago. And I don't think there's anything on the planet that quite reminds me of how old I'm getting, like riding a roller coaster. Because <laughs> I used to love those things, and I still do, but now, I mean, I could ride them for, you know, just over and over and over. Now it's like once, and I'm like, oh. you know, I just got to brace them. I get off, and everything's, it's, it's different now, isn't it? <laughs> and that's, that's the simple part. Because there's also things like chronic pain and heart disease and cancer and kidney failure and on and on and on. We, we know that we need a new body. I mean, this, this what we have, I mean, we are perishable, right? Like food left out in the sun too long. That's who we are. But if you're with Jesus, Paul says, you'll get a new one, he, so it's imperishable. And the Greek word that's used for imperishable, it doesn't, I don't think it quite carries uh, the weight in the, the English like we see. Because when we hear the word imperishable, we just think, well, it's not going to spoil, right? It's going to last. And that's true, but actually a true opposite of perishable would be something that continues to improve. And, and most scholars would say that's what's happening in that Greek word. It's not, it's not simply that we stop spoiling. We stop getting old. We actually, 
our body and mind will spend an eternity getting better, somehow mysteriously improving instead of entropy, progress. So it's hard to even imagine, isn't it? And, and he says, from dishonor to glory. I mean, essentially from mess to beauty. Uh, one scholar supposes that if we were to actually see each other now in our resurrected bodies, we would be so beautiful, so glorious, that we'd be tempted to worship one another. It'd be that overwhelming. And we long for that beauty, don't we? From weakness to power, he says. Again, we, we know the the inability that we have to make our bodies do what we want them to do, don't we? All of us, but no more. And, and it's not just that the deaf will hear. It's that even those who hear will discover new notes, new sounds, new melodies. It's not just that the blind will be able to see. It's that even those who, who see will, will find new colors and new textures and, and new beauties to, to marvel at. That the reality is what Paul is getting at is that you and I, all of our senses, everything that we've tasted and touched and felt and seen and heard, all of it has been tarnished by sin. And yes, there's still such beauty and pleasure in our world. And, and certainly we get to experience that and taste of that all the time around us. And yet what he's saying is that you and I, we... We have yet, nobody in this room has yet to experience what it means to be fully human. Without sin, without the baggage, without the junk around us and within us. That when this happens, when we get these new bodies and we, we live in this new world, that our, can you just imagine what that will do to our senses, to our experiences, to, to every bit of our reality, to no longer be bogged down by what's broken. And so he says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I mean, we try to change now, don't we? And we agonize over change, and we fail often. But then it'll happen in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, that you I mean, if you, if you are, if you've given your life to Jesus, that's what Paul is talking about, right? He's talking specifically to those who have said, I'm with this guy who's defeated death. If that describes you, then you will actually be the you that you were always meant to be. Fully known, fully loved, as you were always meant to be from the very beginning. That that, that is what you'll experience, and you'll experience for it forever. That the end is only the beginning, and so let me ask, are we being made new? I mean, even now, right? Because again, this, this promise that Paul is talking about, it's only, it's only for those who are with Jesus. Those who have rejected him and, and who spend their lives rejecting him, they will also be raised, but they'll be raised to judgment, not life. You've got to give him your life. That, that's simply a matter of coming to him in belief. And faith, right, that's the idea of, of confessing your sins and placing your dependence on him and saying, yes, I am, I am with him. And then he begins that process in us even now. I mean, that God calls us new creations even now, right? Even in the midst of the old creation, right? The, the mess around us and within us that we are declared new, that the cure has begun. And as we reject sin and cling to life, we begin to experience the newness that we are called, called to, created for. And we eagerly anticipate the day when we, when we will be given new bodies, new hearts, a new world, and new lives. Yeah, but 
wait a second. I mean, all this sounds nice, right? But everything ends. I mean, we don't have any experience otherwise, right? Everything ends, everything dies. And, and who's to say that we're not going to just make the same mistake as Adam, right? Adam was given a perfect world and he blew it, right? He chose to rebel and as a result, all of this mess is part of our experience. Who's to say we're not going to do the same? Well, we're not just given a new start and a new opportunity to screw up. We will actually see death die. And all that is ugly and Paul says that's going to happen the same time that this whole mysterious new body thing happens. And I mean, I love that Paul calls it a mystery, right? And he says it very clearly. And we, we don't know, right? We don't know all of the details. And it is a mystery. And yet, listen, listen to what he says in verse 54. When, when we receive these new bodies, he says, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is the enemy and we feel it in our bones. It's the ultimate consequence for our rebellion against God in the garden originally and now on a daily basis for all of us. And as a result, death is coming for us. And Paul says that the sting of, the sting of death, right, the pain of death is sin. Because you see, sin is like the poison that we drink. Over and over and over. Another sip, another gulp. Day after day. Slowly killing us. And whether you chug it or just happen to periodically taste it, it's always fatal. And it is ravaging us from the inside out. And the law, he says, gives, gives it some of its power, which is interesting, right? Because the law is, the law is a good thing, right? It's good that God tells his people how best to live. And yet, what he's getting at there is, basically, it's, it's one thing if you drink the poison unaware. I mean, it's still going to kill you, right? It's a really bad idea, but it's a completely another thing. If, if somebody actually says to you, hey, that's poison, maybe stop drinking it. And then you keep drinking it anyway, then it's not just stupidity, it's rebellion. And we've all done that, Right? Uh, we, we know the difference even within our hearts of doing something that's wrong but not knowing that it's wrong and then doing something again later that you, that you know is wrong and yet doing it anyway. That's where the poison is. And yet we just keep guzzling. I mean, like an alcoholic searching for life at the end of the bottle, swallow after swallow after swallow. But thanks be to God, death is swallowed up in victory, he says. And I, I love that word swallowed there. I did a little extra study on that. I was just curious. And it just, it means to devour, to drown, to, to overwhelm, to, to cause the complete cessation of something, right? To, to, to wipe it away. I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, swallowed up in a belch of satisfaction. Goodbye, death, Paul is saying. It's gone. And he's, he's quoting the prophet Isaiah there. It's interesting. Isaiah wrote like 700 years before Paul, and yet Paul grabs onto these words. Let me read what Isaiah says about death. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach or the shame of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And Paul adds, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is only through Christ. It's only through, through his work on, on our behalf. And it's not just that we Christians are biased towards Jesus. Uh, but of course we are, all right? Let's, let's admit it. We, we're kind of drawn to this, this individual. And yet, yet it's more than that. What Paul is getting at is, is that Jesus is the only one who's done it, right? He's the only one who defeated death, who dies and lives to tell about it. And if, if that happened for him, then maybe, just maybe, there's a chance for me because the reality is I'd really like to try that someday. To, to come back. To not be held down by the grave but to live and to, to not just live, but to see the death of death. That's the idea that Paul's getting. The destruction of violence and, and war, the annihilation of cancer and Parkinson's, the end of lust and greed and abuse and selfishness and depression and loneliness and all of it swallowed up and flushed on down, gone forever. A distant memory of our existence. I mentioned recently uh, reading uh, The Book Thief. Fascinating little book. Um, as, as I talked about last time, you might remember if you're here, that the narrator of the story is death itself, which is just an interesting way to tell a story. So death is the one talking. Um, and at the end, uh, death says to the audience, to the reader, it's just so fascinating. I love, I love, I love how it ends. Um, so this is death speaking. He says, I wanted to tell her many things about beauty and brutality. But what could I tell her about those things she didn't already know? I wanted to explain that I'm constantly overestimating and underestimating the human race, that rarely do I ever simply estimate it. I wanted to ask her how the same thing could be so ugly and so glorious and its words and stories so damning and brilliant. None of those things, however, came out of my mouth. All I was able to do was turn to her and tell her the only truth I truly know. I, death, said it to her and I say it now to you. I am haunted by humans. Because, friends, death will die. Death will not have the last word in our, in our stories. It does not have the power over us that it longs to have because the end is only the beginning. And so are you facing death with hope? I mean, you're facing death, right? Every one of us, right? Yours and the death of every person you love. We're all there experiencing it. And yes, we grieve, of course we do. And yes, we're afraid, of course we are. But is your life characterized by hope? I love the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's the great pastor who resisted the Nazis in Germany during World War II. It was actually in a plot to assassinate and overthrow the Fuhrer. I mean, kind of a, kind of a cool pastor in a lot of ways. But at age, at age 39, he walked to the gallows as a result. Um, and on his, on his way to his own death, um, he said to an, uh, an, a prison inmate, he said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. I mean, I cannot even imagine having that kind of faith. 
And yet how I long for hope like that. But listen, I mean, at this point, it may seem like everything that I've said, everything here, it really is just pie in the sky, isn't it? At the end of the day, I try to just sort of trick you a little bit. And, I mean, it's something to look forward to if we happen to be right, but it's, it's way off there somewhere in the future, and it makes very little difference in our lives today. Well, that's, that's why this last verse that Paul hits is so important. It's the conclusion for all of chapter 15. If Jesus has risen from the dead, and if we too will rise from the dead as a result, then we will know that it has not been in vain that our lives, our existence, the things that we do, the relationships that we form, the, the work that, that consumes us, none of it is in vain. Everything, everything matters. This is, this is what verse 58 is, is getting at. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, as a result of all these things that I've just told you, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Your life, your work, your everything, it's... It's not in vain. And, and really, according to, to Paul, if it's not true, if this is all just some great fairy tale, then, then that means that everything is in vain. That any sort of meaning that we try to carve out, any, any sense of significance in life, if death is the end, that yeah, we, can, we can try and we can pick certain things to say, this is what I'm going to define my life by, this is what's going to give my, my life meaning, and yet it's, it's all going to end. That nothing lasts. That, that you won't be remembered very long after you're gone, that it's all going to be over and that life is meaningless. Unless, unless, unless maybe there is something that lasts. And so one more question. I mean, whether, whether you're a Christian or not, again, regardless of your beliefs, what brought you here this morning, whether you're eight or 88, are you seeing your life through a forever lens? through a lens that outlasts you, that goes further than your, you know what, 80 years maybe, if you're lucky, 85. The work of the Lord, Paul says. And usually when we hear that, right, we kind of tend to put a whole bunch of spiritual categories together, don't we? We think of it's like the really spiritual things that Paul's, Paul's talking about, that those are the important things. But the reality is, uh, with, with a theology like this, with understanding that God has, has a plan for this world and these bodies and all of life, that means everything matters. Everything is spiritual. That there's, no, there's no sort of dichotomy that we, we artificially make. I, lo- I love how one scholar puts it. He says, what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. And so what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all of it will last into God's future. But these activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. Instead, they are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Let me think about it. I mean, before God told us to do any of those so-called spiritual things, one of the first things he told us as humans was to get to work, right? To cultivate and keep the garden. That's at the very beginning. Before everything fell apart, he says, work, get to work, do this, take care of of what I've called you to. And and when Jesus has asked what the two greatest commandments are, the most important things, it's to love God and love others. And the reality is, for most of us, the place that happens, it's where you spend the majority of your time. It's not here. It's in the work that you do. Whether you, whether you like your work or not, whether you get paid for it or not, whether, you, whether you're a student or a, a stay-at-home mom, right, or, or you own a large company or you're a construction, it doesn't matter, or you're, you're a pastor. 
that all of it matters in the eyes of, of this God who, who has called us and who is redeeming all things for us. It is all God's work, and as such, it is not in vain. And in fact, the, the primary work of the church doesn't take place within these walls. And sometimes we're so mistaken when we think that, and, and we pastors are, are probably most guilty of that. We think that everything good has to happen here. The reality is the primary work of the church isn't here. It's out there. It's everywhere else you are. It's every sphere of influence. It's every conversation. It's every person you serve by the work that you do. It's, it's the relationships you build with your neighbors and your classmates and, and your neighbors and, and all of that. that that's, that's our real work, people, of loving those around us. Not just the church when we're gathered, but with church when we're scattered. It's not, it's not meaningless. Your work will last. If God is going to make, remake this world and this body, then what I do in this world with this body matters, and it matters forever. And it matters for all of us. Are you seeing your life through the lens of forever? The end is only the beginning. Your end is only your beginning. If you know and embrace this Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what it takes, right? To come to him in faith and repentance of giving your life to him. This, this God who has come, who has died on our behalf, taken all the punishment that we deserve, and then who actually defeated death and, and has come back and is promising to come back again and to make all, all that is wrong right. If that is your story, then you, you will be made new. You will see death die and you will know that everything has mattered, that it has not been in vain. And so we can say thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the best pictures I know of this uh, is in Lord of the Rings. And I know, uh, I know I'm a dork, okay? And I've been quoting it to death lately. We just finally finished, I just finally finished reading it to David. Um, so put that behind us. I'll not quote it again for a long time. Um, you, don't, you know that's not true, right? Um, <laughs> It's just so good, right? And I, I, love, I love how it ends, how it culminates, because at the end, their world is made new, right? And it's our story. Tolkien is writing from our vantage point, longing for the day when it's all finally made right, right? It's, it's a story of sacrifice and hope, of the swallowing up of all that is evil. And I love, I love it towards the end, these words. Let me, let me read it for us. It says, Full memory flooded back, and Sam cried aloud, It wasn't a dream? Then where are we? And a voice spoke softly behind him in the land of the king, and he awaits you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white, his beard now gleaming like pure snow. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel, he said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. How do I feel, he cried. I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel like, like spring after winter and sun on the leaves, and like all the songs I have ever heard, and Sam laughed aloud for sheer delight, and he stood up and cried, Oh, great glory and splendor, and all my wishes have come true. Everything wrong 
made right. In the presence forever of the one who is dead but lives, now made whole. Yeah, but it's just a story. Is it? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to believe. God, that's a work that you're going to have to do in us. God, I pray that you would give us the gift of faith, and that you would give us a hope that transforms everything about us. God, I pray that you would forgive us for our narrow views of what's happening and what's going to happen. And God, that we would be so captured by what you have in store that we would be able to cry aloud, Lord Jesus, come, and that we'd actually mean it. And God, that is our prayer. Please come. Come back, rescue us, rescue our world. Take all that is ugly and broken and make it new, make it right, make it beautiful. And God, would you begin that work in me and in every one of us. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for you are the one who has given us the victory. And so be glorified as we praise you now.